Generally speaking, year after year after the church celebrates the resurrection by whatever name it calls it, many call it Easter, some call it Resurrection Sunday, we call it First Fruits because that's the biblical name. But usually what happens is that there's the celebration of the resurrection, and then the following week, go back to the typical sermon series or how to have a better Monday or whatever the, the various churches uh, uh, teach. But since the series that we've been going through is the earthly life and ministry of Jesus the Messiah, we have seen that his death and burial did not end the story because according to the scriptures, he rose again on the third day. So the story continues, and we took a look at the angels announcing to the women that he was not in the tomb, that he had arisen, and they were to go tell the disciples and to meet him in Galilee. And then we saw that he had met with Peter, and he had met with the two uh, disciples on the road to Emmaus and had a conversation with them about the scriptures and how it was necessary for the Messiah to die, be buried, and raise again. And that when they prevailed upon him to continue with them and to, to eat with them, and when he broke bread, they then recognized who he was, and he disappeared. And they went back to tell the disciples, yes, he is in fact arisen, we've seen him. And that's where we left the story last time. And I, like I said, a lot of times then when we go on to some of and people tend to think, well, whatever resurrection sermon was talked about that day, that that is it. And Jesus then went to heaven and we're all here to do whatever we're to do. But the scriptures tell us that, that Jesus remained here for 40 days giving many convincing proofs of his resurrection. And so what we're going to do is we're going to continue the next couple of weeks taking a look at those various resurrection appearances. And so if you'll turn in your Bibles to John chapter 20, starting with verse 19, we're going to see this continued appearances by Jesus. And so it says, when it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, so now last message was on the during the daytime of Sunday his resurrection appearances now we've gone to the evening so and when the doors were shut where the disciples were for fear of the Jews and so the, the door wasn't probably just shut it was probably locked and it says for the fear of the Jews and there's a many reasons why they'd be afraid reason number one was Jesus had told them that they were to take up their cross and follow him and that the master was not above, the slaves were not above the master. And so they quite reasonably could suspect that they too are next. Also, the disciples were accused by the religious leaders of stealing the body. So their presumption is, well, we could be arrested for theft and they're going to want to find the body and blame us and, and whatever. So there's this fear that they have, so they've, they've uh, shut the door, probably locked it because of their fear. Jesus came and stood in their midst. Now, 
If you are one of those naturalists, you would say, well, Jesus somehow unlocked the door, the door wasn't locked, and he just showed up. Others who might say, ooh, spooky, he, sh he showed up as a ghost in their midst and whatever. The scriptures don't teach either one of those. The scriptures tell us that, that he had a resurrected body just as we will have. So I suspect that this resurrected body that Jesus has and the resurrected body that we will have will not necessarily be held to the three laws of, that we're familiar with. Height, width, length, or even time. And that because of this body, which is a body and not a ghost, he's able to appear as if he were in the fourth dimension or fifth dimension or whatever it might be. But the body is different. He is not a spirit, but he appears amongst them and says to them, peace be with you. Now, you can look and say, well, this is a common Jewish expression of how you doing. It's just shalom. But I think it carries a very important weight here because they are fearful. And Jesus says, peace be with you, which should cause them to remember my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives you peace, peace I give. Because peace be with you. And when he had said this, he showed them both his hands and his side. So Jesus again says, I'm not a spirit. I'm not a ghost. See, there is physical manifestations of who I am, and I am not another. I am, if you will, the Lamb of God, who is the Lion of Judah. You would think with the resurrected body that Jesus' body wouldn't be absent of those wounds. But to me, it tells us he is the worthy lamb that heaven will cry out. And we who are the redeemed will say so and say, worthy is the lamb who was slain. And those marks will show us for eternity his love, his grace, and the reason that we are praising him. We showed him, showed them his hands. He even showed them his side that they might understand. And the disciples then rejoiced when they saw the Lord. So now they've turned from fear to peace and celebration. They're rejoicing because the one that they had been with for three and a half years or so, who had taught them, who had loved them, who had showed them, suddenly is not dead but alive. So they rejoice. And notice, so Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. Because this world tries so often to steal our peace. Even when we rejoice in the Lord and we have a wonderful service and you say, well, wasn't that sermon good or that was tolerable, or wasn't the worship great, or whatever. But then Monday comes, and you get those bills, and all of a sudden, you're fearful again. 
The world always wants to steal our peace, and Jesus reminds us, peace be with you. And then he says something, as the Father has sent me, I also send you. Jesus says, the whole point of my ministry for three and a half plus years has not been to just educate you, not to have a very effective seminary on understanding the scriptures, but that you might be equipped to go out and be my witnesses. So he says, the job is not to hang around in this room. The job is to be sent just as the Father has sent me. Now, unfortunately, oftentimes many churches and the church tends to teach that God has a wonderful plan for your life. And so you should get saved. And, and yes, you should get saved. But the problem is God, for all of us, has a wonderful plan for our eternal life. But between our acceptance of him and that time when we go to meet with him, may be filled with heartache and pain and suffering, just as the disciples will experience, because the world hates him. And because we follow him, the world hates us. They don't want our success. They want us silent. And so if you take a look at being blessed, when we do as the Lord, and even though there may be conflict and there may be difficulty and there may be persecution, we will live a blessed life where we can rejoice. And even at, in the book of Acts, we see that when the disciples suffer and are persecuted, they rejoice because they say they are considered worthy to suffer for the name of the Lord. And we need to change our perspective to say, he sends us, sends us, and he may send us to Mozambique. He may send us to Nigeria. He may send us to the Middle East. He may send us to places, or he may send us to Orange County, or he may keep us somewhere. Because as we share this place, when you look at Jerusalem versus this place, we are the remotest place of the world. So God may have sent us by keeping us here that we might testify of him. So he says, I'm sending you. Just as the father sent me, I'm sending you. And what did the father do? He sent Jesus to teach of the father, to redeem us, to love us, to learn to make disciples. So he says, he's sending them. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. Now, there are some people who say, well, we're confused here because in another 50 days, there's going to be Pentecost and the Holy Spirit is going to come. Well, Jesus just breathed on them. So how is it that the Holy Spirit? Because Jesus told them that it was necessary for him to die and go so that they might receive a helper. And every believer receives 
the Holy Spirit. He indwells in them. But there are times when the Holy Spirit empowers us to do things that earthly people cannot do, that things that happen, like, for instance, when Peter preaches and people respond, it wasn't that Peter was an effective preacher. It was that the Holy Spirit came upon the crowd and they received them. And so Jesus breathes on them the Holy Spirit and tells them to receive it. And then he says something that I think many people misunderstand. Verse 23 says, If you forgive the sins of any, their sins have been forgiven them. And if you retain the sins of any, they have been retained. And there are some denominations and some people will teach, well, what this means is in essence, for instance, since I'm the pastor, you're supposed to come to me and confess. Or if I were a priest, you're to come and make confession. And if I absolve you of your sins, then therefore you're absolved. And if I don't, or you don't come and confess, then you're retaining your sins. That is not what this scripture teaches. And that is not what the scriptures teach. The scriptures teach that you have a high priest already who has introduced his own offering to the heaven holy of holies and that we can go there with boldness to find grace and help in time of need. You do not need any person to intercede for you on behalf of you because Jesus said it is finished and he is already paid. And this scripture doesn't teach that. As I want you to notice something, it says, if you forgive the sins of any, then if what they are teaching is true, then the next part of the sentence would be, and their sins will be forgiven. But it does not say that. It says, if you forgive the sins of any, their sins have been forgiven, which means it's past tense. And if you retain the sins of any, they have been retained. It's not if you retain the sins of any, they will be retained. Then you might say, well, okay, that argument might, but that's not what the scripture says. So let me tell you what I think it says. And notice I say, I think. Jesus is saying, I'm sending you. If you don't go, then those who are under sin, who is all of us, sins will be retained. Because the only way we have forgiveness of sins is because of the sacrifice of Christ. So when we communicate to those that message, then they have the opportunity to have their sins forgiven. But if they reject that, their sins will have been retained. There is a person, I won't mention his name, um, a famous magician who is an atheist, proud so, and he has the right to be wrong. But he did say something that is, is very true. He says, if Christians believe what Christians believe, that if you do not accept the, the blood sacrifice of Jesus, that you will go to hell. But if you do accept that, you'll go to heaven. He says, it would be hate for you not to share that message. Jesus sends us because the Father loved the world. And we are to go to the world because the Father loves them. 
and gave the son gave himself for them. So we are there to present the gospel so that people might believe and have their sins forgiven. Verse 24, but Thomas, one of the 12 called Didymus. Now Didymus means twin, so it may very well be that Thomas was a twin. And if, if he were today, his brother would be probably called Timothy because we, everybody likes to do T's and A's and whatever. And so uh, Thomas, who was probably a twin, wasn't there with him when Jesus came. Now, it doesn't tell us where Thomas was. But you know, it's amazing how many people in the scriptures miss out on things when they're not there. Or how people get in trouble when they're not to be where they're supposed to be. So, for instance, David wasn't where he's supposed to be with the kings at war. He was hanging out on his rooftop, having lustful thoughts about a naked woman. And here's Thomas. The other 10 are gathered together there in his upper room. And for some reason, Thomas is now maybe saying, well, I'll hide out differently because if they get them, they won't get me. Or maybe he had plans that evening. I don't, I don't know, but he wasn't there. It kind of reminds me of people who are like casual churchgoers. When we come to worship together, we don't just come to hang out and say, boy, it's good to see you in the service. But we come to worship God. And when we come to worship God, you know, God might just do something. And wouldn't it be terrible that if God did something and you weren't here? Well, God was doing something in their midst and Thomas wasn't. And because of that, let's see what happens. So the other disciples were saying to him, we have seen the Lord. So their confessor said, look at Thomas. I know you weren't here. Peter saw him. Mary Magdalene saw him. The women were told about the resurrection. The two disciples on the road saw him. And he showed up in our midst. We saw him. We saw the hands and we saw the, the side. We saw him. You need to believe. But he said to them, I'm going to paraphrase a little bit beforehand. In essence, I don't care your testimony. I don't care what you have to say. It doesn't matter if you saw him or not. Unless I see in his hands the imprints of the nails and put my finger into the place of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. Now, Th Thomas is called Doubting Thomas. I don't look at it that kindly. This is refusal, Thomas. He goes, unless God does what I say he should do and prove to me how he should prove to me, then I will not believe. I'm not just doubting, I refuse which is a lot of the world today. They will not take a look at the facts of the resurrection. They will ignore it. They will say, oh, science is the thing that we are to believe. And I'm going to use this word 
precisely, believe in. Now, science is a way to know things. And science used to be one of those things where we would have a hypothesis, and then we would conduct experiments. And if the experiments have proved itself over and over and over, we would come to a realization of a law or some type of, of agreement. And so, for instance, if you were to take a pot of water and take a Bunsen burner and heat the water at sea level, water tends to turn to a boil at 212 degrees Fahrenheit. And you can test that. You can test it here on the West Coast, and you can go to the East Coast and test it, and you can do all these things, and you can discover that it's kind of unanimous that when you're at sea level, water will boil at 212 degrees. Now, if you take that presumption and say, well, it, it boils everywhere at that temperature, you'll be wrong. Because if you go to Denver, where it's a mile high or so, the water will not boil at 212 degrees because the atmosphere has a difference of it. But we, that's why people say at sea level, water will boil at 212 degrees. That's science. Because you can experiment. But science now says there was a big bang. Well, the first question I have is the question God asked Job. Where were you when I formed the world? And the answer was you weren't even thought of. So you weren't there. You can only presume that that's how it started. Now, I agree with the Big Bang Theory in the sense of the universe did not always exist. But to believe that everything in the universe composed of a dot so small and so dense that we couldn't see it, my first question is, who made the dot? Because it had to come from somewhere. So even if the little dot became everything, Where'd the dot come from? Or we'll say, even though that there's millions of different types of life here on earth, whether it's plant life or organisms or whales or humans or gorillas or kitty cats, not poodles because they're not really dogs, but all of those, all of those different animals, science tells us comes from one little organism and yet science says that you can't take an inanimate object and make it animate. Mary Shelley has a very interesting book called Frankenstein. That book is not about creating life. That is a book about reanimating life. We can't even do that yet. But let's say we can. Or let's say we take God's materials and we're able to make something. Are you telling me when you make that thing that there was an intelligent life there to make it? Or are you saying you're unintelligent when you made the life? And so science will tell you, surely this is what happened. I'll give you one other example of circular logic. They will say the, the strata of Earth will tell you how old something is. But then they'll also say that fossils will tell you how old something is. And so they say if, if a fossil is found at a certain level, then it must be this old. But if they find a fossil at a higher level, 
then they say, well, then that strata has to be that age because of the fossil. That's circular argument. That's saying we believe this because it's here, but if it's not here, we believe it's there. That's belief. The convincing proofs of the resurrection are to me far more persuasive than how vociferous a person who wasn't there tells me how old something is. So he refuses to believe. Just like many people refuse today to believe. And will come up with any other belief system to avoid the fact that God is your creator and has a demand on your life. Verse 26, after eight days, now I want you to notice something, eight days. Thomas lived in refusal or doubt for eight days. The disciples who had seen the Lord and testified of his resurrection were rejoicing. And Thomas is still miserable, convinced that his Lord had died, and refused to believe. So after eight days, his disciples were again inside, and Thomas with him. Well, it was good for him to show up. It would be really terrible if he missed this opportunity. And so Thomas was there with them, and just Jesus came, and the doors having been shut, and stood in their midst, and said, Peace be with you. He gives them the same salute, shalom, peace be with you. Again, my peace I give to you. Making the same appearance as he had done previously, the doors being shut. Then he said to Thomas, now notice I want you to understand something. Jesus wasn't there when the disciples told him that Jesus was alive, and yet Jesus knows all. Not only knows what you say, but he knows what's in your heart and what's in your intent. And I want you to see the love that Jesus has for Thomas, the refuser, not just the doubter. Because, you know, thank God I'm not God. Because I'd have probably not shown up to Thomas. But Jesus did. Or if I would have showed up to Thomas, I'd have berated him. How dare you not believe your brothers when they told you something? Then he said to Thomas, reach here with your fingers and see my hand. Notice he quotes Thomas. He goes, you said you would not believe unless you stuck your fingers in the holes in my hand. Here they are. And see my hand. And reach here, your hand, and put it into my side. You refuse to believe unless you saw these things? Here they are. Conduct your experiment. Conduct your investigation. And do not be unbelieving, but believing. Jesus comes to Thomas in love and understanding and says, Okay, Thomas, you're having difficulty. 
I could in my right as God to say, how dare you demand of me anything? Because I am the Lord, you're my servant. But to create belief in you so that you would no longer not believe, touch away. Thomas answered and said to him, my Lord and my God. Thomas goes from not only my Lord, my boss, my, my master, my rabbi, that who I'm, I'm willing to do anything for that he says, not only is he my boss, but I acknowledge that he is God. He went from refusal to acknowledgement that Jesus is the Son of God. So for those of you who doubt or refuse, there is hope that God may remove all doubt. But notice what Jesus will say to Thomas. Jesus said to him, because you have seen me, you have believed. I acknowledge. I showed you, you came to faith. You believed. Blessed are they who did not see and yet believe. Jesus is talking about you and me. Now, there are times that I must, you know, frankly, I go, wouldn't it have been awesome to have been one of those, well, except for Judas, God knows I don't want to be him, but wouldn't it have been awesome to be one of those, it didn't have to be Peter or James or John, just somebody that you hardly ever mentioned, you know, and to see him teach, to see him love, see him be who he is. But you see, Thomas no longer needed faith because he saw. Jesus is saying, because we have come to faith because of the evidence, the convincing proofs that he has demonstrated, that he lived according to the scriptures, that he died according to the scriptures, that he was buried according to the scriptures, that he rose again according to the scriptures, that the Father testified who he is, that he has testified who he is, that his life testified who he was, that the disciples testified who he was, that the empty tomb testifies to who he was. All of these things, the Holy Spirit testifying of who he is. We come to faith not having seen with our eyes, but having seen because of the grace of God. And as awesome it must have been to be one of those 11, Jesus saying, it is more blessed because you have come to faith, having not witnessed. See, Abraham didn't have to have faith that there was a God. His dog talked to him. He had to have faith that God would do what God said he would do.
We have come to faith not having seen physically, but having seen spiritually who God is. And we believe that God is a God whose loving kindness is everlasting, who is a redeemer, who is good, who loves, and who keeps his promises. And there is one thing everybody talks about. Well, you know, can God create a rock that is so big that he can't move and on? I'll give you something that's actually impossible for God to do. Lie. So when God says something, he means it. And so when God says, we are more blessed than Thomas, then we are more blessed than Thomas. I want to end on this story that, that I heard from another person. I will expand on it a little bit. When you're walking down a pathway and you come to a fork in the road, and on one side of the beginning of the fork is a dead person. Now on this other side of the beginning of the fork, there is a person who's alive. Who would you ask for direction? That dead person might be Confucius. That dead person might be Schopenhauer. That dead person might be Descartes. That dead person might be, name any of a million names of people, Caesar. Or would you ask for directions of the person who is alive, Jesus? Because on that pathway, Jesus says, I am the way. I am the truth. And I am the life. If you want the way, you pick him. You want the life, you choose him. You want the truth. You choose him, and you follow his path. Others will convince you that they know the answers, and they will speak it with such confidence. And in that superiority of their wisdom, they lead not only themselves, but others astray. Jesus does not ask you to follow Thomas. Jesus does not ask you to follow Peter. Jesus does not ask you to follow Paul. Jesus, Lord knows, does not ask you to follow Joe David. He asks you to follow him and to be with him, to live with him and for him. Because we believe that he is the son of God. We believe the father loves us. We believe that the Holy Spirit is there to be a helper for us. We believe in the resurrection. And we believe that he's coming again. And we do so because we are blessed. And all God's people said. <laughs>